This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I'm your host, Danny Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is Lisa McIntyre, a writer living in San Francisco with her dog, Toby, who I have to let you all know, I know Toby. So, um, sorry, that's just a little behind-the-scenes treat that only I get to have. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you, Danny. It is surely a pleasure to be here. It is so fantastic to have you here. I obviously think that you give fantastic advice and are generally right about most things. So I look forward to a real mutual admiration society today. Yes. Oh, don't we all need that? Just constantly. I mean, sorry, I, I really took it for granted, by the way, that you were going to say the same thing. So feel free to do whatever <laughs> you need. I'm just letting you know, I think you're great. <laughs> Uh, this is your cue to be a normal person and uh, return the compliment. Yes. Um, <laughs> so what I've been thinking about, my dear friend Danny, is that one, yes, you do know my dog, Toby. And in fact, Toby really took a shine to you early on. I remember the first time we all met that he just jumped into your car ready to zip away, never to see me again. And our lives would have been different had that happened. He could just tell that I was special. Yes, absolutely. He just got a feeling about me. Dogs, uh, babies, uh, wild animals often will walk out of a forest just to like briefly nuzzle at my hand or see if I have a shiny apple in my pocket. Um, It's really not a big deal. I try not to talk about it too much. Sometimes they do favors for me. Sometimes they leave me little presents on like a nearby flat rock. It's nice. It's like not, it's not a big deal. I try not to make a big deal out of it, but I do appreciate it. And obviously I do benefit. I mean, you, you and Bjork, I mean, I think like that, you know, they have a sense. They know it's, it's you two, the chosen. Yeah. Yeah. No, they, they, something in me speaks to them. um, And they, in return, uh, just want to give me a little presence. And I never turn that down. And I think now your charm has only increased with the reappearance (laughs) of the glasses because those those are known just baby magnets. They focus your Babies energy. love glasses. Yeah. They focus it. Can you, by the way, can you see me? I know that um, Phil was telling me they've repositioned the camera in the studio so you can see me now. Um, but I have I no can. idea. Oh, fantastic. Well, hello. There you are. I can't see you, but I, I trust you. I remain a mystery, a voice in your ear. Well, I'm glad that you're here, even if I can't see you. And I feel bad because this has been a sort of charming introduction and our first letter is a real bummer. It is. It is. I'm just going to try to shift us into a slightly more somber tone. Um, Okay. I also, though, am really glad that this letter writer wrote to us. I'm really glad she's been giving this a lot of thought. Um, and and I'm especially glad that this person is no longer in her life. So there's, there's reason to be, um, I think, hopeful for the future. I agree. So the subject is unsure and uneasy. I'm a straight 32-year-old woman. When I was 10, my aunt started dating Carl, a classic creepy uncle type. He would walk in on me in the bathroom, stare at me inappropriately, hold on to hello hugs for way too long, and rub my back, things like that. I wasn't the only person he did this to. While he never raped me, his presence in my life was extremely harmful. When I reached puberty, I was terrified of male attention. 
and didn't start any kind of sexual or romantic relationship until I was in my late 20s after a lot of therapy. Fortunately, I'm doing a lot better now. Carl hasn't been in my life in over eight years, and I've been in several healthy relationships. But I don't know how to understand what happened to me. When Carl came up recently, my mom, who I'm usually close with, talked about how she, quote, protected me from Carl and never let him harm me. I don't know how to tell her that she didn't do enough, or even if I should. My mom would be devastated, and I don't know what good it would do to tell her. Why was I so affected when other family members, including other people my age, weren't? What do I call this? I don't want to minimize, quote, real sexual assault by calling what I experienced assault. I'm confused about how to move forward in talking to my mom and others about what happened. I mean, I just, I feel so, so much for this letter writer. And I think there's a number of different things that are available to her. I just, I think I want to start by saying letter writer, what you have described here sounds like a pretty terrifying campaign of sexual harassment. And while it may not have involved like a violent assault or, or, or an act of rape, I, I think we can characterize like purposely intruding into the bathroom. That's sexual voyeurism taking advantage of quote-unquote hello hugs, unwanted back rubs to a child. That is sexual harassment. Those are forms of sexual abuse. You're not taking away anything from other people by, by using those terms. And, and I would really, I would encourage you not to think of those things as just like regular, normal adult-child interactions that he happened to like imbue with a weird vibe, but themselves were unwanted, unconsensual touching um, that I think falls under the rubric of, of child sexual assault, um, even though it doesn't necessarily involve like specific types of like legal contact, if, if you know what I mean. You're not talking about making a distinction in a court of law. You're talking about like describing a, a really consistent ongoing case of child sexual harassment. Yeah, I'm with you there, Danny. I I really feel for the letter writer, and I think abusers often use this kind of plausible deniability to their advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, well, I didn't, I didn't hit her. Well, I didn't, I didn't rape her. I didn't, you know, I didn't do this to him. I didn't do this to them, and that that doesn't account for the terrifying atmosphere that comes from being around someone who you feel has a malevolent presence and um, makes you feel uncomfortable all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the letter writer doesn't specify how much she was around Carl, but even if this were once a year, so you have the, you know, Thanksgiving, you know that you're going to be around this person and you have the suffering anticipating during and after. It's two abusers' advantage to only think of these things in legal terms as opposed to how did you experience those events? And what I'd want this letter writer to know is that your experience is completely valid and honest to you, and it did happen to you. And I'm very sorry. Right. And and um, yeah, I would just really encourage you not to feel like by talking about this like kind of terrifying campaign of sexual harassment I experienced as a very young child— as something that could hurt anyone else who had experienced different kinds of, of childhood sexual assault or violence by talking about what happened to you, by acknowledging that it was wrong and that the adults in your life should have stopped it, you're not taking anything away from anybody. Um, you are looking after yourself um, and you are 
accurately naming what happened to you that other adults in your life tried to downplay while it was happening. So if that's at all helpful in terms of kind of letting go of that fear, I hope that you can, because I just, I really don't believe that there are people out there who would say like, whoa, whoa, whoa. If you talk about Carl, that somehow makes what I experienced with this other abuser feel less important. I, I really don't think that that will be an outcome. I think if anything, this is like a holdover from this happened, it sounds like, if not in always full view of other adults, like at least enough that your mother was aware that there was something to protect you from. So my, my guess is part of what this fear is coming from is other adults saw a substantial amount of this, clearly knew on some level that it was wrong and that you were terrified and did nothing. So one of the lessons that you, I assume, picked up from that was this isn't a big deal at all. Right. Right. And and just, you know, the quote, quote unquote, protected me. I mean, that just kind of screams that an adult knew that something was wrong and is now reassuring themselves that, oh, no harm happened because X, Y, and Z. And that's just, that's just not the case. And there wasn't a curiosity about, oh, what was it like for you to be around Carl? What, what was that like? Right. And so I th- that's such a good point, Lisa, is just like specifically, it sounds like some of that idea might have come indirectly from your mother, who it sounds like is trying to delineate like physical rape or like genital contact is the only form of like physical sexual harm an adult can perpetrate on a child. And anything that doesn't include that can't be harmful. Therefore, I protected my kid. Therefore, I did a good job. And I think that's where some of this like anxiety about real assault comes up is because you know that's not true. You know your mom didn't protect you. And I, I, I don't know much about your own mom's like experience uh, in, in her own family. It may very well be that for like her, she really like improved upon what she experienced as a child in terms of her ability of looking after you. But like, you don't need to worry about like, was it better than something she might have experienced previously? Like, was she raising the bar some? Like, what you're talking about right now is like, that wasn't enough. And it is not, in fact, good to look back and say, well, I knew this guy was sexually harassing my 10-year-old kid, but I didn't, without rocking the boat so much that I made him mad, uh, I made sure that he never actually raped her. Good job, me. Let me congratulate myself in front of my kid in the future. Um, That's wrong. She's wrong to do that. And so, again, I, I really want to be aware of the possibility that you and your mom have a close relationship in a way that's mostly like loving and healthy and that you don't necessarily want to go in screaming hot. But, you know, letter writer, I would encourage you if you haven't kind of already done this to really explore the space when it comes to your anger towards your mother, your aunt, and the other adults in your family who saw this and let it happen. Um, or who saw this and thought, you know what this appropriate res- the appropriate response to this adult harassing a 10-year-old is? It's just kind of keep an eye on it. Uh, make sure he doesn't like remove any clothing. As long as he doesn't do that, like I feel good. That That's really, really wrong. Yeah. Building on that, what I see going on here is that the letter writer has a lot of questions, understandably. And part of the questions are you know, I don't know how to understand what happened to me. And I think that that's the first part of the, There's sort of like the internal questions of how do I process this? How do I understand this event? And, you know, the letter writer mentions therapy. Um, there's no time like uh, jumping right back in 
I mean, it could be that, you know, therapy has gotten you to the place where you've you've been able to have uh, healthy romantic relationships. That is fantastic. That is huge. Don't want to downplay that. But, you know, it's clearly still bothering you. And it's worth um, figuring out how, you know, how do you process this to make it easier. Like these things never, they don't go away. It's about learning how to manage kind of the the day-to-day and what the ramifications are. Um, and I feel like the next, the next part is then, you know, well, then how do I deal with my family? And I think like that's the second naughtier, as in K-N-O-T, <laughs> not naughtier uh, part of the question. Um, and and I think I guess I would recommend kind of gaming it out, essentially, because you need to decide what you're looking for and maybe how realistic it is to get that from these adults who let you down. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, letter writer, you say that you don't know um, what to call this. And so one thing that I would suggest and like, try it out, say it, see how it sounds. One of the things you could say that happened to you was you were systematically targeted and sexually harassed by a grown man for years, starting when you were 10 in full view of your family and multiple relatives apparently saw him do this and either thought nothing of it um, or thought that the right response was just to like slightly maneuver him so that they could, with plausible deniability, keep him from crossing line from acceptable sexual harassment of a child within the family to unacceptable sexual harassment of a child within the family. It's kind of a mouthful and it's a little like therapy talk. So obviously you can put your own spin on that, but that's pretty, I, I think, close to what you have described here. And I think that's pretty serious. I think it's truthful. I don't think it either downplays or exaggerates much. And and you might consider saying that. Um, you you say, you know, I'm not sure if I should or, or what good it might do to tell her, her being your mother. Um, again, I don't want to be too flippant, but one thing that I think it would do that would be good is that it would devastate her. I think she should be devastated. I think she did something really wrong and she should feel terrible about it. That doesn't mean I think she should feel like she's a worthless human being for the rest of her life, but I think she should feel very, 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 very bad about what she did at the time. And I think she should feel even worse about what she said to you recently. And if anything, I I think she's maybe sort of like, trying to find her way towards the truth by bringing it up now over eight years since he's left the family. I don't know, maybe she's always talked about it like this and you just kind of registered it lately, but it seems more to me like she brought this up maybe for the first time in years. And sometimes people know that there's something under the surface, but they haven't yet accepted the possibility that they've been telling the story in the wrong way to themselves. And I'm kind of actually curious if Part of the reason she sort of congratulated herself on protecting you, thereby named the thing that previously needed to be kept kind of quiet, was because some undercurrent of her was like, I'm not sure if that's true. I want to get my kid's take on this. As you know, Lisa, I've talked about this before with you. When my brother disclosed to me that he was sexually attracted to children, I have often thought that on some level that he was not conscious of, he must have known that I was not going to join the rest of the family in helping keep this a secret. Yes. And that, again, without without it being a conscious desire on his part, because um, he very much did not want me to stop him working with children, but I do believe there was some part of him that was like, I need to be stopped. And again, I'm not like giving him credit for that decision, but I think that's why he told me, partly at least. Yeah. I mean, certainly we all know that was the reason why it was 
that secret was kept from you. Right, that's because, why I was laughing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, one, one thing that comes to mind, and I, I had to have a conversation with a, a friend about this once. I'm, I'm going to be vague, which is sure. annoying. But essentially... Oh, you're not going to splash someone's private details about family sexual assault (laughs) on this podcast? That's so unusual. Why would you why would you want to be at all tactful or use discretion? Well, because it's about me. I mean, if for someone else, fuck it. But no, it's about me. So I had this this friend like bring up a very like tender and upsetting incident in my past, and she brought it up as a joke during a birthday party. And, you know, it took me a long time to process it. And what I ended up doing was was writing it out. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that helps. I think this is a situation where I think having a face-to-face conversation might be very difficult and would be easily derailed. And you might not be able to get all of these things down. So I, w- I might suggest to the letter writer, um, even if you don't send it, writing an email to kind of go over, I, I think just like go over first, like the events that that happened so we can agree on on what happened, even if you don't label it, and then talk about how it affected you. And I think then it's, a, you know, it's up to your mom about how she wants to react to that. And if she feels bad, like that's, that's okay. I mean, it kind of, it breaks my heart. It's good. How, yeah. I mean, I, I, boy, do I know that feeling of, <laughs> oh no, I must, I must protect the authority figures in my life from <laughs> knowing things about me that might make them feel bad. I understand that so very deeply. But at the same time, you got to just barrel past that, I guess. I don't have <laughs> a, a good way. You just got to go for it. Yeah. And, and and to be clear, I don't mean this in a purely punitive sense. Although, you know me, I can get a little bit punitive. I think there's, you know, sometimes a little bit is okay. Because feeling bad about it will be the first necessary step on the road to meaningfully apologizing for it and making changes in her life so that if something similar ever happened in the family again, she would make a different decision. So it's not just it would be good for her to feel bad because it's her turn. It's because that's the first thing that has to happen before she can change. She can't just go from thinking, I did everything right that time to changing. You've got to have something in the middle. And so I think, you know, letter writer, it would be worth talking to her about because you're a person who matters. Um, Specifically, you know, you're her child whose feelings matter to her because your childhood experience is important and you deserve the chance to speak honestly about it. And because, and again, I put this on a lesser scale than kind of like your need for honesty and clarity when you're already harboring a lot of feelings um, that you haven't shared with her, like they're already there. This would just be about naming them rather than speaking them into existence. But also because uh, it would be good for her to recognize that she did not do enough to truly, truly want to change, to look for ways to try to work on and repair her trust with you as an adult on an honest, like transparent basis and to commit to like a different framework of child safeguarding for the rest of her life. Those would all be really good outcomes and they would have to start with something painful. And so, you know, I don't know exactly what your mother's response would look like. 
And I can't promise that right away it would be ideal, but I do know that if it's ever going to involve anything like a meaningful acknowledgement of what you suffered and a meaningful apology and a meaningful change for the future, it's got to start with honesty. So again, that doesn't mean you are like obligated to have this conversation with her. I want you to look out for yourself on this one um, first and foremost. And if you just decide I'm not ready for that right now, or I'm not up for it, kick that can down the road, take your time. But I think sometimes it can help too. If it's you, it's easier to dismiss. Think about if there were a 10-year-old in the family right now who felt that level of fear and terror, would I want them to just keep it to themselves and say, well, what's the point of telling an adult later? They'll just feel bad. Or would I say, no, you deserve to talk about this honestly. Um, and and then treat yourself like you would that 10-year-old because that was you. And um, I think there's a potential for this conversation to be, of course, sad and painful, but potentially good if you're if your mom really loves you and cares about you and wants to protect you, letting her know that she did not do enough and that there's changes that she needs to make. Hopefully she will say, yeah, I want to move in that direction. I do want to do those things, even if it's hard and even if I feel guilty. Right. It's just not, it. you know, it's not the worst thing in the world for someone to feel shitty realizing that there, there was a, a failing. And it, the letter writer does say that that she is close to her mom. And I, you know, so what they're saying is a it's a relationship that they care a lot about. And I think it, it's worth, it's worth bringing up. It's worth exploring. Yeah, I do too. I, I think the other thing, which I, I realize we've kind of left until late, partly that's just because this is a, there's a lot going on. The letter writer says that she was not the only person that Carl harassed. Mm. And then also has a line towards the end. I wonder why I was so affected when other family members, including other people my age, weren't. This to me suggests that the letter writer hasn't talked about it with those other people. I could be wrong. Maybe she has had some of those conversations, but I wonder, letter writer, if that might be a place to start if you're not yet sure about what you want to say to your mother. You you can. You can absolutely get in touch with those other relatives and ask if they are open to having a conversation about Carl. And of course, you know, you can respect them if they say no. Um, don't don't try to force the issue if they feel unable to have that conversation. Maybe plan some special therapist sessions uh, of your own kind of before and after those conversations so you can go into them kind of prepared. But I would also encourage you to not necessarily let go of, but just put to the side for a minute this belief that you were affected and others weren't. And I say that really gently because like it's, you certainly haven't like done anyone wrong by making a, a, an unfounded assumption, just like maybe they dated and, and didn't like hold off on relationships in the same way that you did, but they might very well have experienced similar levels of terror that j- they just haven't shared or that might have kind of affected their lives in different ways. Um, and certainly they would not be the first people who had experienced harassment or assault or abuse as children who as adults kind of reacted to that with a little bit of bluster or a little bit of, I'm fine. Yeah. What strikes me is that even if we played out that even if no one else was quote unquote affected by this, that you were, letter writer, you were. That, like, and that's, that's okay. If you are the only one, that doesn't make it any less bad. But in all likelihood, you probably weren't the only one. And it's, it's the kind of thing that you just, you just don't know. You right. just don't know. Right. I mean, again, that's uh, abusers. These are all things that abusers count on. They don't want you talking to other people. 
and they don't want you finding out the other damage they did. That's why secrecy works so well for them. So, you know, fuck that guy and yep. uh, talk to other people. Yeah. Um, and just kind of a last thought um, is if you do talk about this with your mother or if you don't, one thing that might be useful, you say, you know, he never raped me. Gosh, at 10 years old, you didn't know that, you know, like all you knew was that this guy would burst into the bathroom. He would stalk you. He would harass you. He would take advantage of like forced physical contact, like give your uncle Carl a hug. Um, and that he was doing this some of the time in full view of other adults who were acting like nothing was wrong. So I think one of the things that you could potentially share with your mother was that starting from the age of 10, you lived in regular fear that he might rape you. In addition to all the other harm he like precipitated against you, you had no way of knowing what life would be like in your 30s. You didn't know what was going to happen next. All you knew was that you were being sexually violated by this grown man and no one was doing anything. So you had every reason, I think, to fear that that was on the table. And that's a, one of the many, many, many like kind of compounding negative effects of this kind of like harassment and abuse, which is, I don't know how physical this is going to get in any given moment. I don't know what I'm going to do because nobody else is reacting like anything wrong is happening. So I guess I'm on my own here. And that is a hideous thing for the other adults in the family to have done to you and to your other the other children in your family. And again, that does not mean you can't love your mother. That doesn't mean she can't love you. That doesn't mean she couldn't have been a good parent to you in a lot of other ways, but that was wrong, deeply wrong. Um, and she needs to feel guilty about it in part so that she never does that again. And I don't say need in terms of you have to tell her. I just mean it would be good for her to feel bad about that in a productive way rather than just like, I'm going to wallow in shame kind of way. So Anyways, I just wish you all the best, letter writer. I do hope that you talk to some of your other peers in the family about it before you consider talking to some of the other people who were adults when you were a child. Please do write back. And again, if you just decide I'm not ready to have these family conversations yet, I just want to go talk about it some more in therapy. Do that. Um, be well. Take care of yourself. So our next letter is a little, uh, you know, we're still in like kind of like, how do you advocate for kids territory? But but we are moving away from creepy uncles, which is a good thing. So we're, we're slowly. Always um, a good thing. Working our way up. And this one, this one's sort of, you know, fun for me, at least in the sense of like, it's a real <laughs> uh, test case in terms of the limits of just like. When, whenever it was in like 2010 or whatever that that mansplaining entered the sort of like lexicon and then people began like morphing it into like other kinds of splaining, um, what, what, what we now have as a result is like, oh, this isn't great. Anyways, uh, I will stop front-loading this question with my own thoughts um, and I will simply read the letter. Subject is, want to advocate, not overstep. I'm not a parent and I've only known my boyfriend's kid for about four months. I like them a lot, uh, so I'm not exactly an authority figure. A few months ago, my boyfriend's kid came out as non-binary and switched to they-them pronouns. The whole family has accepted them, but my boyfriend still often uses their old pronouns. My boyfriend is also a trans man who came out about three years ago. He's fine with his kid being non-binary, but says changing pronouns for a child you've raised since birth is hard, and he needs more time to train his brain. I get that. 
I don't, letter writer, but I'm wondering how I, <laughs> as a cis woman and a non-relative, should handle this in the, in the meantime. I've been doing what I usually do when somebody misgenders someone, which is calmly remind them of the right pronouns and carry on with the conversation. Excellent strategy, by the way. Uh, that was me again, uh, interjecting. However, my boyfriend has been getting irritated with this, and he finally told me not to, quote, cis-splain to him. I get that, but what do I do instead? Do I let him use the wrong pronouns until he gets used to it? Or maybe just say it once per conversation, no matter how many times he does it? It doesn't seem fair to leave it to his 11-year-old kid, and honestly, I was hoping that my gentle reminders would help him get used to it faster, so that his kid doesn't have to hear him misgender them all the time. It seems absurd for a cis person to correct a trans person's behavior about a trans issue, but I'm also an adult who wants to advocate for a child without overstepping my bounds. Any tips? Give me your boyfriend's number, please. Because then I can yell at him and I can say I came out as trans five years ago, so I have seniority and I can't cisplain this to you because I'm in your secret special little identity category and I'm going to yell at you. That's how we're going to solve this problem. Is it wrong that I I just read this and I go, oh, Fox News would have a failed day with this yeah, one? I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, just like as I think we have seen, being a member of any given identity does not necessarily and automatically mean that you are going to treat other people with like marginalized identities well. Um, it's not an indicator of morality. It's just an identity category, and so you can get pretty quickly lost in the weeds if you try to subscribe to trans people wise, uh, do what they say. Because uh, then if a trans person behaves like an asshole and you say, oh, I don't think you should do that. They say, ah, but you are cis and I am trans. And therefore, like, 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 like as if you're playing poker or something, they're like, but I have two aces. And you're like, well, he has two aces. Yeah. Well, you know, Caitlyn Jenner comes to mind. There are certainly exceptions. I have personally not heard of cis-splaining before. That's a real treat. It actually, it kind of rolls trippingly off the tongue. I I, I think that's a pretty good, yeah, it's a pretty good portmanteau. I'll I'll give it that. I I don't want to give it anything, but I hear you. (laughs) um, I am, however, mystified by the boyfriend. I don't, I'm very curious about what's going on here. Why trans for me and not for thee? I don't, I don't know. Can you hazard a guess as to the psychology here? I can't, I'm, I'm struggling. Yeah. I mean, I I think it's just like, Some people genuinely do not think about like their own identity categories outside of like what, how does this benefit me um, and enable me to like end a conversation with somebody else. And so, you know, there are absolutely people who feel like my transition is like legible and cool and interesting and somebody else's transition or relationship to gender or, you know, non-binary status um, is weird and fake and not, you know, nice and good like my thing is. Um, And if anything, my nice and good transition makes me an expert um, in the field of gender, and therefore I am more uniquely qualified than anyone else to decide whose relationship to gender I need to like respect and legitimize and whose I can dismiss. Um, and it's it's also like it's a shame. I wish that uh, trans people were exempt from it, um, but that's not always the case. And so this is just bullshit nonsense. What he's saying, like it's no harder to change pronouns for your kid than it is for yourself. Because, like, 
you, you, like, you know what I mean? Like he used his old pronouns for himself until three years ago, also since like as long as he could remember. Right. So this like this whole argument of like, whoa, 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 any time. It's just like, no, like what you're saying is, is basically, I feel entitled to tell my kid who they are um, because I feel a sense of ownership over them. And I don't want anyone to challenge me on that. So then the question is like, how do you challenge somebody on that without overstepping boundaries as like, hey, I've only known your kid for four months, but this seems fucked up. And also, does it kind of at a certain point begin to change your feelings about whether or not you want to keep dating him? Like, that's also, I think, an open-ended question. I feel like if I were dating someone and they were being this big of an asshole about their kids, like switching pronouns, if we'd already had a bunch of like gentle reminders and then they were a, a dick about it, I think I would probably... I'd like want to stick around for another few weeks just to like really advocate for the kid and then I would dump his ass. I, I as much as I uh like the sound of the term cisplaining, you're just you're not cisplaining, you're you're simply asking your boyfriend, can you not be a fucking dick? Why are you being a dick about this? This is not this is not hard. And what worries me is that it's not, like if this parent can't get it together to correctly gender their own kid, then how the fuck are you supposed to be protecting this kid in the rest of the world and advocating for them? I don't like, so it, it, this comes down to like, well, you just sound like you're a shitty parent and annoying. I don't know. Yeah. what. <laughs> why, why is your boyfriend getting irritated this, about this? Like, because you're, because he you're, knows he's right? doing the wrong thing. Exactly. And that's <laughs> why he's getting defensive. Um, so like letter writer, I would say, you know, calmly but firmly say, I'm not cisplaining. I am correcting you when you misgender your kid. You don't get a special pass to misgender your kid just because you're their parent. And it's actually really um, affecting my respect for you that you won't change here. I'm not going to stop correcting you. You need to stop misgendering your kid. This is important. I I think that's like pretty reasonable. Um, And I get that That's extremely reasonable. And I I feel like it's, again, I I really understand that you like wouldn't necessarily come into a relationship uh, of four months and then like say like, you know what, I I think you need to do this differently at like bedtime or like you need to have a different family policy around the dishes. Like no one wants to be like rude or intrusive. Um, But this is like really basic advocacy stuff. I think you've been right to do the general reminder. And I I just want to give you full permission from another slightly more senior trans person. I will write you a permission slip if you need it along with the date that I started HRT um, so that he knows I outrank him. Um, <laughs> that's just like, that's not a thing. Like, cisplaining is, whatever cisplaining is or could be, it's not, hey, you misgendered your kid. I, I just want to encourage the letter writer, like, I think she's been, like, reluctant to challenge her boyfriend on, on like, in terms of, like, the moral high ground because she feels like, well, he is trans, so, like, he wins. But, like, you're the one with two aces. He doesn't have two aces. It's be- this is about, like, behavior, not identity. Not misgendering people is the behavior. Whether or not you're trans or cis or non-binary or anything else is not the issue. The issue is, like, respect and letting somebody else determine the, like, the terms of- upon which they want to be addressed. Um, and so hold, hold your, stick to your guns on that one. And maybe also check in with the kid and just be like, how you doing? I'm really sorry that your dad has been so shitty about that. Maybe don't say shitty. I don't know. 11, like you, you gauge, but just be like, is there more that I can do to be helpful to you? I'm really sorry. Completely agree. So much of this comes down to just not 
just truly not being a dick in the world. I mean, mm-hmm. I think if your if your child said to you, "Hey, parent, um, you've been calling me Tommy. I really want to go by Tom now," um, and you just refused to listen to your child and only called them Tommy, you know, because it takes time to train your brain. That's a, it, well, yeah, that's but you have to move. train it because you're not training it. It's like this is like I don't know, sitting <laughs> right. on the couch you and tra- like eating a loaf of bread <laughs> and saying like I'm training for a marathon right now. It's like. No, training for a marathon would be like having some bread and then going for a run. You're not training. You're actively not doing it. So. Right. The training is the doing. Yeah. The training is correcting. That's that's the training part. Right. Like, and sorry, I wasn't trying to get into like a like food policing thing of like, oh, bread's the opposite of running. I just mean that like, you know, <laughs> bread's not running. Bread's great. Eat bread. But like running is running. Correct. And yeah. And like, again, like uh, not to draw too many parallels between the first and the second letter because they're they're very different scenarios, but I think it's really important to like not defer too often to just like parents as owners of their kids' boundaries. And so again, like I get why you don't want to be rude and like try to dictate how somebody else raises their kid, but it's also like take seriously the it takes a village thing and say like, I know your kid. I'm part of this life right now. And like, this is not okay. This kid needs more of a defense. And like, if you're not going to do it, I'll stand up and do it. Somebody should like your boyfriend's kid needs to see that. Other people in the family need to see that. Like, people should not defer to, like, parents' bad boundaries just because they happen to be the parents. And I just think especially like, at 11, there's so little about your own life that you can control. You don't control, like, what you do with your day. You barely control what you do with your time after school. Uh, you have no money. You can't drive. Like, you have no real independence. Your life is so much at the mercy of, like, what your parents decide to give you that just like this little bit of, no, you deserve to decide your own fucking like pronouns um, and to ask that other people like meaningfully attempt to like make this change. Um, It's just huge in terms of like, yeah, you're a person. You deserve to have your own ideas about your life and your body and your future and your like social status. All of that. Um, And letter writer, I'll just go ahead and say um, if they don't shape up soon, Dump them. Like that just, they, they, they sound dickish and annoying. So dump them. Yeah. And like maybe if there's other people within the family or extended family that you can kind of enlist to also like, um, again, like these are like offering like non-freaked out corrections. You're not asking anybody to like throw a sword at him. Um, but if you, there's anybody else that you can kind of like rope in do. But also like if at a certain point this does affect your feelings for him, which I kind of imagine that they might don't feel like, oh, I have to keep dating him to keep an eye on the kid either. Like, that's not something that I want for you. I also want you to be in a romantic relationship with someone you, like, not only, like, respect, but also feel like you can handle reasonable conflict and even being told lovingly and graciously that you're wrong and that you won't just, like, be a defensive asshole about it. I think that's such a huge element of, like, character that when you're looking for someone you could be in a relationship with, like how somebody handles reasonable criticism is is really important. And this is just, I, yeah, I would just find it really difficult to like be attracted to somebody who was acting like this. Yeah. I'm sick of this boyfriend and I want them to, <laughs> I want them to get it together yeah. and just be respectful to your own goddamn kid. It's not that hard. It's oh my god! Really it's not. not that hard. It's really not. Like again, just like oh, I've 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 known this kid's pronouns since birth. 
that's too hard. And it's like, well, that's 11 years. You're older than 11. You changed your pronouns. So like by the transitive property, friendo, uh, you should be misgendering yourself all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, like we know that that's, yeah, we got, got it. Em. Folks, folks, you've <laughs> stepped into a logical trap. My razor sharp mind has <laughs> once again encircled a foe. Um, it's just like, it's stupid and you know it's stupid and you know it's bullshit. And that's, I'd so much rather somebody just say like, because I don't want to and I don't like it and I think I'm the king of transition than like, oh, no, 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 this is just a, it's an issue with time. It's just a time thing. No, it's not. You know it's not. There it is. There it is. All right, we will we will pause there momentarily. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I just generally think that like the more and more I hear like questions like this and the more and more that I hear about just like, you know, like demanding like a child's bill of rights, the more like radicalized I get on that front where I'm just like, honestly, 12-year-olds should probably be able to vote. Um, and we need like, serious, serious ways to minimize the amount of like control and power that parents have over their children. Couldn't agree more. Not drive, to be clear. Driving, nobody should be driving. We should be getting rid of the ability to drive um, because the planet is going to turn into soup. Um, But also, I think you should be able to vote before you should drive. And this has been Danny's sense of the world. (laughs) It's whimsical and arbitrary. It's just wild to me how much uh, power that that parents uh, have and truly get to treat their children like pets or we're at, frankly, frankly, you have a higher chance of your pet being taken away first. I was going to say, I feel like people are more likely to intervene if they believe a pet is being mistreated. Like they're, they're way more ready to speak up. Whereas like, if it's your kid, someone's gonna be like, Oh, well that did seem pretty bad, but that is their kid. And who knows? Maybe they're having a bad day. Absolutely. Um, what is th- Sorry, my mind, of course, went to um, something we all know Mm -hmm. that is abusive to dogs, which is um, playing fetch with them. Sure, I remember that. Which is obviously the exact same thing as giving your dog drugs. Do you you care to contextualize that at all, just for any of our our listeners who might not have been on Twitter (laughs) at the time? Or totally also a valid choice. Do you want to just leave that one? um, And and if you get it, you get it. And if you don't, you don't. Yeah. um, Yeah. Frankly, I am. I could p- try to give context to it, but I saw this secondhand from you that uh, <laughs> a, a main character on Twitter one day insisted that um, playing fetch with dogs is um, akin to giving them heroin, mm-hmm. um, and that really stuck with me. Even though I never saw the tweets, I would never waste I only heard heroin about on it a secondhand. Dog, just to be clear. Well, yeah. It's expensive. Yeah, those are for cats, obviously. No, that's for me. I mean, I'm I'm not going to relapse. <laughs> I think staying sober has been good. But like, I don't know. If there's if I've got heroin and I have to give it to someone, it's going to be me. Um, I'm not going to waste it on a Sure, straw. like putting why would you put fentanyl in children's Halloween candy? Why would you why would you waste that? Yeah. You should give it to Same me logic. while I could watch a documentary uh, about trees or something and feel really intense. Exactly. Listen to some jazz. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was actually earlier. uh, I always know that like I'm in a really good place emotionally, mental health wise. If I've been listening to a lot of like mid 60s white guy bossa nova and uh, earlier this week, I was listening to a lot of Tony Hatch, who has a lot of songs that are like, like they all sound like the odd couple theme. 
Um, and I was just like walking around town, like walking the dogs, listening to it. And I was like, oh, I'm doing well. This is my time of year. Listen, you know, got a swing in your step, feeling the groove. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a girl from Ipanema. Mm-hmm. You've got a stick. Have you, by the way, uh, recently rewatched The Odd Couple? Because it shines. It shines like a jewel. Oh my gosh. It's beautiful. Um, I haven't. I do feel like I have whole stretches of it committed to memory. I can really, I could really go pretty far in my brain just watching it. Yeah. Um, I surely love that movie. I feel strongly and slightly problematically uh, that Jack Lemmon trying to commit suicide for the first 10 minutes of the movie is like some of the most erotic uh, scene ever committed to American celluloid. Like, I just think it's... Erotic? Oh, it's, I think like a comically despairing Jack Lemmon trying to commit suicide is incredibly, incredibly sexually compelling. And I will not explain myself. (laughs) I... I mean, would an explanation help me get there? I feel like I explained it beautifully. I don't know, but I love that for you. I think that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. I think that's beautiful. I I think bless your erotic imagination. I I, I think he was such an incredibly uh, like expert cataloger of uh, like the petty indignities and frailties of living in a body, Mm. especially in like the mid-century middle-class register. Um, and and that was really like his chance to shine because the first 10 minutes of the movie are just mm. him being constantly frustrated by these like tiny and, and like undignifying details. And he's throwing out his back and he's throwing out his neck. And, you know, they, they want ID at the hotel he wants to jump out of the window of. And I just think that's like brilliantly done. And so. So maybe it's it's the like his mastery of the physicality of the situation, even though it's not. It's that he's so fully embodied. That's yeah, and I also have slightly erotic like part a of it. thing for self-destructive masculinity uh, that you know I'm not going <laughs> to okay. apologize to you for, Lisa. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, and, and nor do you need to explain. But I am fascinated and curious. All right, well, we can talk a little bit more about this after the show. Uh, I'm happy to share with Let's. you all of my maladaptive uh, uh, fantasizing. Well, Lisa. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Um, It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it has. Well, I just loved getting to talk to you and I hope you and Toby have a fabulous rest of your day and that um, either you get to watch a lot of shit on TikTok that makes you really, really mad or, (laughs) or that you get to do something that makes you really, really happy depending on what you feel like doing. Well, I am happy to say I am 9% into middle March. So uh, I th- I am taking some corrective steps in my life Kazabon. to repair the TikTok Kazabon. damage. Kazabon. Yes, I love him. <laughs> He's my favorite. Nobody understands him but me. <laughs> He's wonderful. I love uh, him so much. So yeah, more, more middle March, less TikTok. That's my promise to you. Thank you for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, if you can, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. 
Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations with the guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form, or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. Here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. I also want to know what the workplace is, because immediately I started imagining this in a in a school, kind of like in a Tom Parada novel. Okay. I don't know why yeah. I went there, just for like dramatic. I don't know. It, sound, it just sounds more dramatic in my mind. I think I um, could imagine that it might have been like food service, hospitality, just because that's like the industry that I think of when I think of like people cheating on each other. So it's like, oh, and like, and like, oftentimes it's easier to go like hang out when like your boyfriend works at like a restaurant if it's a really messy, I mean, emotionally messy, not like physically messy place. Oh, that's true. Plus, you've got the hours that are weird. And if you stay out late, yeah. But it could have been oh, just yeah. like an office party. Okay. <laughs> she could have just like, I don't know, grabbed one of his key cards and lets herself in. And it's like, let's go down to the calf. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.